0: Judgment Day is defined as the time of the last judgment, or in blunter terms, the end of the world. But it would be the final judgment and the end of the road for a few select national title contenders on November 8th, 1997. And the Michigan Wolverines would play an important part in handing out that judgment. Welcome to episode 10 of Road to the Victors, the story of the 1997 Michigan Wolverines. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, Assistant Sports Editor at the Detroit Free Press. On this journey, we're taking you game by game, week by week, to give you the inside look at how the 1997 Michigan Wolverines captured their share of a national title. Michigan's toughest test of the season so far takes place on a historic day in the history of college football. November 8th, 1997 would join Thanksgiving weekends of 1996 and 1971 as legendary days in college football. Four of the top five teams in the country would play each other. Number three, Florida State travels to number five, North Carolina for a Saturday night showdown. But just a few hours earlier, it's going to be number four, Michigan going up to State College to face the number two. Penn State Nittany Lions. The top five spots in both the AP and coaches polls belong to Nebraska, Penn State, Florida State, Michigan, and North Carolina. The winners of this monumental Saturday would have a few more weeks to stake their claim to a national title. However, the twists and turns of the 1997 season were just beginning. If you want the complete story of the 1997 Michigan Wolverines, the Free Press is publishing a commemorative book. Hail yes, the story of the 1997 Michigan Wolverines can be purchased at um.pictorialbook.com. For 3 decades, Penn State was among the most consistent and successful programs in all of college football. In 1993, Penn State became one of the last elite independents to join a conference, becoming a member of the Big Ten. It didn't take long for the Nittany Lions to achieve success in the league. The Penn State Nittany Lions put together an undefeated season, finishing second in both the AP and coaches' polls, but unlike their years as an independent, they didn't get a chance to play for a national title because of the Big Ten's ties to the Rose Bowl. Had Penn State been an independent, they most likely would have played for that year's national championship game in the Orange Bowl facing who? Nebraska. Entering the 1997 season, Penn State was coming off a Fiesta Bowl victory and was ranked number 1 to start the season. After breezing through their first 5 opponents, Penn State had been tested in their last 3 ball games, most notably against Minnesota, where they were down two scores deep into the second half before winning 16-15. Still, the Nittany Lions were among the favorites to remain in the national title race, mostly due to running back Curtis Ennis. Ennis was one of a handful of players who could have been considered for the Heisman at that point. He had already amassed over 800 yards rushing on the season. He was also a thorn in the side of the Michigan Wolverines. He had also been a thorn in the side of the Michigan Wolverines the previous year. In a 29-17 win over the Wolverines, Ennis slammed the door on Michigan with a 38-yard touchdown with less than five minutes left in the game. That victory essentially ended hopes for a Michigan Rolls Bowl appearance. Now, a year later, there is much more on the line. When we come back, I am joined by someone who was in the stadium that day, Gene Myers, former sports editor at the Free Press. He talks about the monumental game in State College when Road to the Victors returns after this break. Welcome back to Road to the Victors, the story of the 1997 Michigan Wolverines. The setting is State College, Pennsylvania. It is a cold and gray Saturday on the second weekend in November. However, what happens in State College, Chapel Hill, and even Columbia, Missouri, goes a long way in determining what happens to the national championship. Joining me to talk about Penn State and Michigan, along with this historic weekend, is Gene Myers, former sports editor at the Detroit Free Press. Gene, this Saturday feels like a throwback to when I first fell in love with the sport. Although we have Florida State and North Carolina playing later on in the night, it feels like all major business on the college football schedule is being settled by 7.30 p.m. Days like this are very rare because now you're playing in prime time on one of the many networks. You aren't being able to see what's going on, you know, around the country in 1997, unless you have satellite, which was still kind of a rarity. Uh, But now you can just, with the click of a button, you can go from one channel to another. At at this point, you have Penn State and Michigan. Part of the country seeing that game. Part of the country is also seeing Nebraska and Missouri. It it, it feels so special and rare that you have days like this. I, I want your thoughts on that.
1: Well, going back in time, and it's 25 years later, so a lot of people don't remember. We'll go back even farther than that. It was Bo Schembeckler who always said, basically, God wanted college football games to be kicked off at 1 p.m., and he didn't like moving times around for TV and thought that was just wrong, and for the longest time didn't think Michigan should do that. Well, hey, the money talks, and you know that's how we got 3.30 starts in the Midwest, which, uh, you know, back in that time, the stadiums didn't have lights. They always had to bring in portable lights. And even this game at Penn State, there were portable lights, even though it was an afternoon game because it was so rainy and dark. And it was a different time then. And people forget that. And, you know, you know, 10 years from now, when uh, Michigan is playing, uh, let's say, uh, Washington State in a big 12 matchup at that kicks off at 11 o'clock uh, on a special Fox midnight special every Saturday, you know, <laughs> people are really going to say, oh, I is right. They ought to play at one
0: o'clock. It's, it, it, it's so funny to see how, you know, just in working on this series and seeing how the sport has evolved and now you're seeing, you know, you have multiple primetime games. You didn't have that now. So it's, it's so fascinating to see what happened then as compared to now and how the sport has evolved. Not only how we settle a national champion, but how we view the game. So that, that's been one of the really special things about about this series. But uh, we talked about last week, uh, but Penn State had been a real bugaboo for this Michigan squad. And, and even bigger shadow was Lloyd Carr's record in November entering the Penn State game. He is 3-4 in just three seasons. Sure, that's a small sample size, yet it's really not good like it's kind of it's kind of scary almost but in my research for this episode I'm I'm looking through the archives and on the Friday before the game our Mitch album puts together a column uh, that basically praises Penn State head coach Joe Paterno of of how he ran his program In, in an era where the sport is starting to feel jaded because coaches are getting massive contracts then so the I guess purity of the sport is going away Uh, but of course uh, as we now know uh, about the sexual abuse scandal with Paterno's longtime assistant Jerry Sandusky uh, things obviously changed with his legacy uh, but at the time they were seen as the model program in the sport Uh, and for those who don't know could you just kind of talk about what Penn State was to people back then?
1: You know, Penn State was viewed as a model program and basically without Joe Paterno at the helm there, having so many winning teams, he finally, you know, he had the giant victory over the Miami Hurricanes to win a national championship and beat Vinny Testaverde. And, uh, I mean, he was a larger than life figure in a lot of ways, and he in a lot of ways was Penn State, and without him... There's no way the Big Ten would have ever admitted Penn State. Uh, he was an icon and one of the biggest, most important college football coaches ever. And the program there was sort of vo- viewed as a monster program in its early days, which we're still dealing with at this time in the Big Ten. Penn State was a monster program, and I will say that it's like force field of invincibility ended this afternoon in state college for the rest of the big 10. And I actually looked up a couple of things that I would say the Penn state program was never the same after that. And, Agreed. Fully agree. And for numbers to prove it. So you think of Penn state, great program. So in 97, they were the preseason number one. They dropped to number two for a while, came back to number one. They're number two when they play Michigan. Two years later, 99, they spent nine weeks at number two. 2017, they spent two weeks at number two. Those were the only times since the Michigan game they were ever number two in the country. They were never number one again. They were number three a couple of times. Once they finished number three, but they were never that monster. And a lot of people thought, At the time, oh, the Big Ten champion every year will be Michigan, Ohio State, or Penn State, or Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan. It was like, it would be the big three in the conference now. And it never turned out to be that. It never turned out to be that. And the other thing about uh, Paterno's reputation, even when things started to come out about Sandusky about 2009, 2010, the Big Ten was getting ready to have their first championship game in 11. They named the championship trophy the Stag Paterno Trophy for a reason. A month or so before the game, uh, Paterno was fired, and the Big Ten quickly just made it the Stag Trophy. So that just shows you how important a figure he was, someone who'd been in the conference at that time for less than 20 years that they would take Alonzo Stagg, one of the founders of college football, and put Paterno with it.
0: For sure, for sure. And onto the game, uh, Michigan puts together a workmanlike drive that results in a Craig Baker field goal to give the Wolverines a three-nothing lead. Now it's Penn State's turn to answer, and it feels like the tone of the game is truly set, not by Penn State's offense, but by the Michigan defense on the very first play. Here's the call from Frank Beckman and Jim Branstadter from WJR and the Michigan Radio Network.
2: Strength against strength, mano a mano, power on power. Penn State, the top offensive team in the Big Ten. Michigan, the top defensive team in the country. Curtis Enos in the backfield for the Nittany Lions. And Mike McQuarrie, the quarterback, up under center. Michigan showing eight men at the line, and here's McQuarrie back to throw, and he's going to be sacked back inside the 15 by Glenn Steele, who came pouring through. Boy, they faked the handoff to Enos, faked the end around to the wide receiver, Shoffee Fields, and by the time McQuarrie got his feet set to look downfield, Glenn Steele was all over him for a loss back on the 16-yard line. Well, I think they were trying to get the ball to Eberly, and uh, Glenn Steele with, again, the great quickness up front saw the guard pull, move down, just ran right by him and got to
0: uh, the before he had a chance to do... Michigan's Glenn Steele gets the sack. You're in the stadium that day, I believe, and, and looking at the tape and, and watching the game back, it, it absolutely has the vibe on that sack of, oh crap, we're in for a long day. And that was just from the fans. Did you get that same sense that the tone had immediately been set once Glenn Steele had that sack of, of Penn State quarterback Mike McQuarrie?
1: When that sack happened on Penn State's first play, I think it sent a shudder through all the Michigan fans and the Penn State fans. You just didn't expect it. And it was especially meaningful because the teams did not engage in a lot of trash talking for the game, except for Penn State's quarterback, Mike McQuarrie. And Part of the reason he did that is Penn State was coming off those close victories. And among his comments were, he talked about Charles Woodson. He said, we'll go right at him. We're going to run right at him and throw right at him and see how good he is. And
0: that's famous last words right there.
1: (laughs) Well, famous last words. So then steal Sacks McCreary on the first play and you go, Ooh, but then two plays later, he was sacked again. And then you went, wow. And Steele's quote at the time was, you know, Michigan ended up with five sacks. Uh, he, You know, everyone was really excited. Uh, his uh, linebacker, Sam Sword, said he shot his mouth off to the wrong team. He challenged us, and we took that personally. And one of the best things when I was researching the Hell Yes 25-Year later book I was looking for comments about that game, and in the New York Times, Malcolm Moran ran. uh, This is what he wrote. McQuarrie had spoken boldly of challenging Woodson, the All-America cornerback. The problem he discovered was such a challenge cannot be made from the prone position. Mm. And that just (laughs) sort of (coughs) went to, as you talked about, setting the tone and You know, the surprise in a lot of ways wasn't that Michigan's defense was really great. Now, they came in with the top top ranked defense in the country, but Penn State had uh, the eighth ranked offense, total offense. They were ninth in scoring and ninth in rushing. So you figure defense would play well. You didn't figure they would just decimate. Penn State's offense. And what ended up happening then is, you know, it's like the offense was inspired by that and they decimated the Penn State defense.
0: Further into the second quarter, Michigan leads to nothing. And perhaps I would argue the most backbreaking moment of the day happens when Michigan quarterback Brian Greasy breaks loose for a few yards, then a few more, and he just keeps on running.
2: Michigan with a football now at its own 20, a 10 nothing lead. Chris Howard the only setback you've got two tight ends in the ball game and uh, here's a fake counter to howard going left greasy bootlegs right he's got running room he's up to the 25 he's up to the 30 still on his feet up to the 40 breaks loose at the 50 finally tackled from behind at the penn state 40 by Shino prater i think everybody thought brian greasy was going to step out of bounds in his own 30 and he kept going and when all was said and done he scampered for 40 yards and i think because greasy's not known for being a, th- a running quarterback The defenders in the secondary stayed with their receivers thinking he's going to throw it, he's going to throw it. And when Greasy turned upfield, they were out of position to come over and support on the run. That was a great
0: run by Gene, it feels like it might be a bad thing if, let me check my notes here, Brian Greasy is busting off 40-yard runs on you. I mean, when you see that play go down, what are you thinking? It it feels like a kid who is on their bike for the first time and, you know, they get to go a block further, then they go a block further, and they're kind of realizing, oh my god, nobody's stopping me.
1: I'm just going to keep going. You know, in a lot of ways, that might have been the most shocking play in the entire game. And When it happened, you know, Michigan uh, was in good position. And just how the game had changed from everyone expecting, this is going to be a Big Ten slugfest. And, like, the final score might be, you know, 16-14 with a late field goal or something like that. And Brian Greasy's is running for 40 yards. So a funny thing happened when he did that. And of all people, the person who basically made the joke, was Bo Schembechler. And this happened during the game at the moment. And Bo, you can imagine how serious he was. He was watching the game in a box with the new athletic director, uh, Tom Goss, in Happy Valley. And Greasy goes and makes this run. And people in the media area all of a sudden were looking at Bo. And Bo took off his glasses and shook them as if like he couldn't believe his eyes or the feet of the usual slow moving quarterback. And he's just smiling and he puts him back on and everyone is just cracking up. It's like, okay, you know, everything, everything can use a light moment. And Bo, you know, if hey, if that had happened when he was the head coach, you know what he would have been doing. He would have been yelling in his headset, okay, off tackle play, next, boom. And you know, he would have been in the moment. This one, he was a fan. And he was like, oh my God, I can't believe what my eyes just saw. It, you know, it's, it's funny you say that because you, you
0: have the bow perspective and then you have uh, Keith Jackson and Bob Greasy, Brian's dad, calling the game on ABC and, and looking back at it, Keith Jackson basically says the last time Brian Greasy was running that fast, his father was chasing him with a stick and literally both Keith and Bob are just in the booth cracking up. They're trying to transition to the next play. But that's just that homespun Keith Jackson humor that we all know and love. And it's funny because just a few plays later, Brian Greasy comes up big once again, connecting with Charles Woodson essentially to end the competitive phase of Michigan's game with Penn State.
2: Well, Charles Woodson jumps in there now for Russell Shaw. Russell Shaw was the one who is getting into that altercation with a Penn State player. And again, emotions can be high in a big game. You've got to control that. So Russell Shaw comes out, Woodson goes in. And, Jimmy, it was Chris Howard who told him to cool it. Howard now flanked out to the right. Streets and Woodson to the left. They've got man coverage out there. Greasy to throw. Woodson wide open in the middle. He hits him on a post at the 20. See you later. Charles Woodson, 37 yards. Touchdown, Michigan. They lost them in man coverage, and the Wolverines have stunned the Nittany Lions and their 95,000 fans. They lead 16 to nothing, 80 hey, Frank, yards in three plays. Frank, how can you not cover Charles Woodson?
0: Michigan would go on to score another touchdown. This time, Brian Greasy connects with Jeremy Tillman to give the Wolverines a 24-nothing lead at halftime. When we come back to road to the victors, Michigan puts away Penn State And the national championship race kicks into high gear, literally, when Road to the Victors returns after this break. We are back with Road to the Victors, the story of the 1997 Michigan Wolverines. We are talking about Michigan's early domination of Penn State. The Wolverines lead the Nittany Lions 24-0 at halftime. Gene, this game is basically over. Penn State's offense is going so slow. They're probably going in reverse at this point. Penn State fans were th- were going there, thinking this is going to be the biggest game in nearly 20 years. Uh, you know, it's cold, it's raining, but all of a sudden, Michigan is dancing with their dates and drinking all of their beer.
1: Well, I think the fans, besides being cold and wet, were just shocked. And when this was all over. This was the most one-sided home loss in Paterno's 32 years as Penn State coach. Now, 24-0 just just was incredible. And, you know, it could have been worse. It just felt like a total, total beatdown. The second half, Michigan basically just started running the ball. They didn't have to pass anymore. They just were, okay, let's get out of here running out the clock. Uh, So sitting there, you're just kind of like, wow this is over, let's, uh, you know, it's cold, let's uh, start writing our stories, and I'll go down and do the interviews, and just like, this is shocking, let's get it over. Well, in the third, or the fourth quarter, uh, two things happened that actually really ticked off Michigan, which Penn State had its Heisman Trophy candidate, which was uh, Curtis Innes, the star running back, and Basically, in garbage time, about five minutes left in the game or so, Penn State went on a long drive and scored a touchdown. And in the process, Innis basically went over 100 yards rushing. I think he finished with like 102 or something like that. But that's the first time a running back had done that against Michigan that year. And then the, uh, it was there, that touchdown – was the first second-half touchdown the defense had given up that year and the first fourth-quarter points surrendered by that year. So in a lot of ways, people on the defense, they talked about how they thought they were dissed by the quarterback, but then they were also upset that they actually let Ennis get over 100 yards and they let Penn State score. So that was a a really interesting sign of just like, man – These guys are serious. You know, they're going to be really good. They're taking this all seriously. And then it was, okay, what did people say about the game afterwards? And Carr, he immediately said, without exception, this is the best performance of a Michigan team in a long time. And if you've been a longtime fan, without a question, it was the best game they played in the decade of the 90s. You know, it might have been their best game, I don't know, for 50 years, (laughs) you know, just not so much the most exciting game, just the way they dominated in a hostile environment, bad conditions, as an underdog with all the stakes on the line, and they just destroyed a really, really, really good team, which also had won 12 state games, longest winning streak in the country. And, uh... You know, and Paterno even had said, Mich- Michigan was a great team. They deserved to be voted number one. And it was like, wow, we just saw something incredible happen here. Like, that's when I think everyone believed this could be the year. You knew Ohio State was ahead, you knew there was the Rose Bowl where Michigan teams went to die, but it was like, This was wow, a big game. They won it and they didn't just win it, they crushed them. And all facets of the game went through, you know, the defense against a great offense and the way they crushed them a little surprising, but the offense doing that was just crazy. And one of the questions asked the offensive quarter, Mike DeBoard, was like, where had this been, where had this offense been hiding all season? And his comment was penalties and turnovers were killing us all year. And what made the difference today is we eliminated them. It's like, okay, that's all I needed to do. Now they're, they have a great offense and up here. Yeah, we're good. We're good. So, uh, and he had another uh, line. That's kind of funny, which one of the keys in that game was Michigan's offensive line which is dominated uh DeBoer said when you have a very good offensive line that enables you to run and pass and that's what you have to do in today's football and in some ways that might be like I don't know a hallelujah moment in Ann Arbor you mean we have to throw the ball too but of course you do everyone knew that so that he said that was just you know ironic and it's kind of like hey these guys can throw the ball, too, some of the time, anyway. Michigan goes on to beat Penn
0: State 34-8. Michigan's defense puts together a performance for the ages, in a week for the ages. Florida State would blast North Carolina, knocking the Tar Heels from the ranks of the unbeaten, but perhaps the game of the year and, you could say, most controversial moment on the field to happen in 1997 occurred in... In Columbia, Missouri, the Missouri Tigers were nearly a 30-point underdog to the Nebraska Cornhuskers, national champions in 1994 and 95. But Missouri led Nebraska at halftime, 24-21. Late in the fourth quarter, Missouri took a 38-31 lead with 4:39 left in the ball game, putting Nebraska's national championship hopes on life support. With 70-plus yards of field ahead of them and a rabbit stadium in Columbia prime for an upset, Nebraska was down to their final play. Quarterback Scott Frost fires a ball into the end zone intended for Shevin Wiggins, but it was, depending on who you talk to, unintentionally kicked into the air, nearly hitting the ground and finding the hands of receiver Matt Davidson, who scooped up the ball in the end zone. Nebraska touchdown, as time expires, 38-38, overtime. The deflated crowd in Missouri couldn't carry the Tigers in the extra frame. Nebraska would score first. Missouri failed to respond. Nebraska wins, 45-38. By the end of Saturday, the national championship chase was down to three teams, Michigan, Florida State, and Nebraska. However, it was Michigan who was number one in the AP poll. Despite all of Judgment Day's craziness, we were just reaching the summit of all insanity. But that's in a few more weeks. Before we go, our guest has been Gene Myers. Game audio has been provided by WJR and the Michigan Radio Network. Anjanette Delgado and Kirkland Crawford are the executive producers of this podcast. Robin Chan and Kerry Jr. II provide technical support. Peter Batia is the editor of the Detroit Free Press. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe to Road to the Victors on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred streaming app of choice. And find us at freep.com slash podcast. Please subscribe, leave a rating, and tell your friends about us. It really does help. For more information on the 1997 Michigan team, pre-order the book Hail Yes! The Story of the 1997 Michigan Wolverines at Freep.com I'm Andrew Hammond, and we'll see you next week.